All glory is the assembled devotees. All glory is the assembled devotees. All glory is the assembled devotees. All glory is to Shishi Guru and Gauranga. All glory is to Srila Prabhupada. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Omagyana Timirandasya Janajana Shalakaya Chakshulmitam Jaina Tasmai Shri Guru Namaha. I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Manobhistam Stapitam Janabhutale Swayam Rupakadamayam Tadatit Swapadantikam. 
When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who is established within this material world, the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vansha kalpa terubhyascha kripa sinubhyavacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namonamaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone, and they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunityananda Shri Dvaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktavrinda. I offer my respectful obeisances to Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Dvaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Shri Thakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Shri Sri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, and Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. Today is Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. I am Jay Sri Radha Devi Dasi, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 17, Punishment and Reward of Kali, Text 40. Please repeat. Amuni Panjastanani Yadharma Prabhavakali Autoreana Datani Nyavasatani Deshakrit. Someone like to chant? Amuni Panchastanani Yadharma Prabhavakali Autarena Datani Nyavasatintandidnideshakrit Amuni All those Pancha, five. Sanani, places. He, certainly. Adharma, a religious principles. Prabhava, encouraging. Kali, the age of Kali. Autoreyena, by the son of Uttara. Datani, delivered. Nyavasit, dwelt. Tat, by him. Nideshakrit, directed. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Thus, the personality of Kali, by the directions of Maharaj Barikshit, the son of Uttara, was allowed to live in those five places. Purport. Thus, the age of Kali began with gold standardization, and therefore falsity, intoxication, animal slaughter, and prostitution are rampant all over the world, and the saner section is eager to drive out corruption. The counteracting process is suggested above, and everyone can take advantage of this suggestion. So, 
What's been happening um, up until now is that Maharaj Parikshit, Parikshit is on a tour of his kingdom, and he comes across um, a man dressed very nicely, dressed like a kshatriya, um, and he's in the process of killing a cow, torturing this cow. And Marge Berkshire has a conversation with um, the cow, the personification of religion. And what we see in this conversation is that the personification of religion is down to one leg. And there are four pillars of religion that we've been discussing. That's austerity, cleanliness, um, truthfulness, and... I always forget. Mercy. So what we're seeing now is how Maharaj Parikshit is dealing with Kali. This person, this is, he's actually the personification of the age of Kali. So this Shudra dressed as a Kshatriya is the personification of the age of Kali. And in the last couple of verses, the conversation has been, you know, where can Kali live? Because Maharaj Parikshit out of his infinite mercy, has decided to let him live instead of killing him. Saying that, okay, if you want to live, you can live in these places. So in the purport of Srimad Bhagavatam 117.38, Prabhupada says, the personality of Kali was given permission to live in four places, particularly mentioned by the king. So these four places are the place of gambling, the place of prostitution, the place of drinking, and the place of animal slaughter. So he, you know, he was told that wherever these things exist, that's where you can live. However, because King Parikshit was such a great king, there, these, place, these places did not exist. Right? He, you know, these kinds of things we'll talk about a little bit further. That gambling, prostitution, drinking, animal slaughter, you know, it happens. It's rampant in the age of Kali, but at this point in time, it's not rampant. So then um, Kali is like, well, these places aren't present, so what does that mean that I can live? So in 1739, the verse yesterday, or previous verse, is the king gave him permission to live where there is gold, because wherever there is gold, there is also falsity, intoxication, lust, envy, and enmity. So gold is, you know, money, right, wealth, that can be that can lead to these four things, and these four things, especially gambling, prostitution, drinking, and animal slaughter, are highlighted as some of the bad qualities of the age of Kali because they're they're almost the exact opposites of the four the four pillars. So we talked about one of the four pillars is austerity, and austerity is like you know living simply. It's um, Understanding that the world is full of misery and accepting that misery, right? And rising above that. So one of the ways that we tend to not be austere is that we don't want to be in pain. We don't want to feel discomfort, right? If it's too hot, we turn on the air conditioning. If it's too cold, we turn on the heater, right? So we don't like that kind of discomfort and we want to have some level of comfort. One of the biggest levels of discomfort that we feel is not actually physical, it's mental and emotional, right? The world is stressful. It's full of that pain that we feel, the discomfort that we feel can lead to other painful things. Like, it can be like, why do I have to suffer through this heat? 
You know, why am I suffering through this? Why am I having to feel this way? So intoxication then becomes a way for us to not feel, right? So that's a way that we take out the austerity of what we're feeling. So then drinking intoxication becomes the opposite of austerity. So when we commit to our path of Krishna consciousness, one of the commitments that we make is no intoxication, right? No alcohol, smoking, caffeine, things like that, because those things in particular um, and other drugs are known to help decrease that level of austerity that we're going through. Therefore, we're not really in the moment and we're not really um, feeling what we're supposed to feel, that we can grow and learn from. Then we also have um, the place of gambling. And with gambling comes, it's the opposite of truthfulness, right? Because when we gamble, we're not really being truthful. We're trying to get something for nothing. We're trying to beat the odds, right? So we're trying to let level some level of deceit to benefit us. Um, and then we've got animal slaughter, which is the opposite of mercy. So, you know, we can see that if we're going to take part in animal slaughter, it decreases the mercy that we feel. And um, we'll go through all of these. I'm just kind of going through them quickly right now as an introduction. And then the final one is prostitution, which is the opposite of cleanliness. So again, that's another vow that we make is to you know uphold the principles of cleanliness. So these four, austerity, cleanliness, um, Mercy and truthfulness are the four main pillars of of dharma, of religion, of how we want to, you know, live our lives. So of those, the only one that's pretty much left in the age of Kali is truthfulness. That's the only leg that the cow is left standing on. So when we look at truthfulness, we can look around the world and can see that, wait, it doesn't seem very truthful. There's still so much deceit. And what the reason that can be is because these four pillars are not independent of each other. They're interdependent, right? So when we look at gambling, gambling is a form of addiction. And addiction is a way to not deal with austerity, right? So it's not just truthfulness that it's not dealing with, but it's also austerity. When we look at austerity, there's so many ways that we can interpret um, no intoxication, you know, so um, if we look at austerity as being okay with living in the moment, okay with being not okay, which was a phrase that I kind of thought was so stupid, right? It's okay to not be okay. I heard this phrase over and over again. It's one of these buzz phrases that we hear now. And I was like, what does that even mean, right? Until I started struggling with some things and I was like, oh, this is what it means, that it's okay to feel um, sad. It's okay to feel bad. It's okay to feel unhappy. Um, because that's, that's the condition of the material world. We feel that way because we're not in touch with who we truly are, which is the servant of Krishna, you know, eternal beings. We're kind of... You know, we, we tend to think that we're in our body because we think we're this body, but really we're in our mind. The body just is. The body is like, you know, it's just a, a shell. 
It's the mind that makes us think that we're this body. It's the mind that think, makes us think that because um, my joints hurt, that I'm in a miserable condition, right? What it really could mean is that the body's joint hurts, right? But the mind isn't feeling that pain, you know? So there's this Buddhist saying that um, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, right? So what does that mean? That means that we all have challenges. We all have these levels of discomfort that we go through in our lives. And what we want to do is rise above them. In the Bhagavad Gita, it's constantly said, you know, like, happiness, distress, good, bad, winter, summer, hot, cold. We have to be equal to all of these. That's when we no longer feel that suffering. That's when we find peace. And then we have... um, So that's intoxication combined with gambling. Gambling is another form of addiction. Uh, We have prostitution, you know, sex life. There, um, sex sex life can not just be about pleasure of the body, but it's also another form of intoxication. That sometimes people um, use sex as a way to not feel. So then you have these people that have multiple sexual partners and they're doing these things because they want they don't want to feel the pain that they're in. They don't want to face their life in the way it is. Maybe they're not living up to what they think they know they can do or um, you know, there's some trauma in their lives and they use these kinds of things to uh, cover it up. I was um, reading this book called The Lives of Stoics. I don't know if it was that one. It was either that one or The Obstacle is the Way. And in it, they were doing this discussion of John F. Kennedy, Jr., president. And they were talking about one of the big, you know, JFK is, is touted with accomplishing a lot for the U.S. But one of his biggest downfalls was he was a womanizer. He was a huge womanizer. And in this book, they were, talk, they were taking excerpts of his diary. And when you read these excerpts, you got this feeling that he didn't even enjoy sex. It was just more of a way of establishing, like, it was something that he saw his father do. It was something that um, he used in the same way people use alcohol and drugs. And the description of it was just like that. And then you get this feeling of like, okay, we tend to think of sex as the highest pleasure in the material world. And yet there's so many people that still don't engage in that level of pleasure with it because they're not in the moment. They're trying to get out of so much pain and discomfort that even the highest pleasure of the material world, they're not even enjoying. And so, you know, that's kind of what prostitution is and to some extent because it's not about connecting with someone. It's not about love. It's about trying to not feel something or trying to feel something different than what you're feeling in the moment. And then we have um, animal slaughter. And, you know, that one, I mean, that comes into all, all of those things like truthfulness, right? Like we, the lies we have to tell ourselves in order to justify eating animals. Um, you know, the, uh, first of all, it doesn't show mercy to all living entities. We tend to place our needs above everyone else's, right? So... Often when I get into a conversation about, you know, 
um, decreasing meat. We've seen so many things about health aspects of meat and um, other animal products and proteins. People are like, well, my body requires this, and I need this, or this is the way I was raised. This, you know, the way I'm doing it is the right way of doing it. Again, these are all kind of like um, self, you know, self lies. It's not like the person doesn't think that they're lying, but these are things that they've been taught and they believe, but they may be based on, you know, false arguments or false beliefs to begin with. So it's a form of deceit of untruthfulness. Um, food itself is another form of intoxication. Right? How many times do we um, come home from a stressful day and want to pull out that like tub of ice cream and just like, you know, comfort ourselves with ice cream or chocolate or, you know, so food itself, even like um, when you talk to someone, it's what they know, right? So eating uh, meat is something that's comfort. It's comfortable, right? It's what they know. So when the world is changing, they want to stick to something that they know. So um, not to say that all of these are all, you know, intoxication austerity. It's just that it is one of the biggest things that I can tie everything to. And so when we look at that, all of these things, right, gambling, prostitution, drinking, animal slaughter, even gold, all of it is kind of in the pursuit of pleasure, of feeling good. And, you know, it's said here that wherever there is gold, there's going to be this falsity, intoxication, lust, envy, and enmity. But really, what is the purpose of gold, of wealth, right? We often have this belief that, you know, if I have money, then I'll have happiness. Then people will love me. Then I will have power, or, you know, if I have power, then people will like me, you know, or if not, I can just, you know, get them to like me, you know. Um, so that comes back to, you know, uh, the verse of the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, it's lust only, it's the strong desire that we have um, that keeps us here. And what is the strongest desire that we have? What do you think the strongest desire that we have is? Any thoughts? To enjoy, right? So pleasure. Anything else? So what are some things that we think will bring us pleasure, help us enjoy? Food? Anything else? <laughs> Food is the main thing, that's true. Um, other things that we can think can bring us pleasure is um, having a, you know, a nice family, right? House, cars, um, and then food in those, you know, in the house. Oftentimes, food does become a center of things, right? Like we gather around the dinner table with our family. When we, when I think, when they've like surveyed people, and in psychology, what it all comes down to, what we're all wanting, our biggest desire is to be loved, 
and to feel like we belong, right? So when we don't have either of these things, we don't feel pleasure. We don't feel like we're getting what we desire. So then we engage in, you know, manipulation, untruthfulness to try to get people to love us, right? To, to accept us, to give us a place to belong. We, um, if we don't get that, then we might use intoxication, um, some of these other things as intoxication. Food is actually good for us. We need food, right? It's when we used food in a way that our body doesn't need it, but we, our mind needs it, that's when it becomes more of an intoxicant, right? Um, we use all of these things, gambling, prostitution, drinking, animal slaughter, as a way of mitigating the pain that we feel from feeling like we're not loved, feeling like we don't belong, right? And so all of these things, even the six opulences that we look at of the material world, wealth, power, beauty, strength, austerity, all of these, they're done so that we can be accepted by people, that we can, people can look at us and be like, oh, wow, you know, she's great, I love her, or, you know, I want to be friends with her. And so what we want to do from that is really pull away from that, right? And build our firm faith and connection with Krishna and the personality of Godhead, you know, the divine being, because he is love. Krishna is love, right? He is the definition of acceptance. So when we strengthen our relationship to Krishna, then we're no longer seeking that love and belonging from external sources. We become that. We emanate that. And then naturally people are, you know, drawn to that. If we look at Srila Prabhupada, I mean, you know, he's like a little slip of a man, right? He was very thin. I don't remember exactly how tall he was. I think he was pretty tall, but he was just thin and and frail pretty much when he came to America, right? And yet... He commanded so much power and respect and love because that's what he emanated. Like he emanated Krishna, and you can see that in his writings. You can see that in his in the stories of his disciples. That that's what he was emanating. He didn't have to like, you know, you must follow me, otherwise, you know, I'm going to, you know, beat you or, you know, he didn't put a gun to anyone's head. The, old, the way he got people to follow him, if you read over and over again, is they heard him speak, and what he spoke, spoke, you know, like touched their hearts, and they wanted to follow him, right? So he wasn't speaking some things like, oh, I'm just going to say these things, and it doesn't mean anything, and, you know, people will follow me. What he did was he spoke what he knows, what his realizations were, the level that he was living. Um, my spiritual master, Tamal Krishna Goswami, has a book called The Servant of the Servant, and in it he talks about why he chose Srila Prabhupada as his spiritual teacher, as his spiritual master. And he talks about, he like went to other gurus. He saw other people um, talk about philosophy, talk about how the world should be, and all this stuff, and even in his uh, university. He just, what he didn't see was Somebody living that, you know, they didn't, they talked the talk, but they didn't necessarily walk the walk until he met Srila Prabhupada. So 
we can see that when we embody this process, that even if we're not 100% fully realized, if we're on the path of realization, you know, many, most of us aren't on the level of Srila Prabhupada, but yet we can see that, you know, we're attracted or drawn to some people because of their qualities of Krishna consciousness. So we want to build that up. And in the purport from today, you know, he says, um, The last sentence is, the counteracting process is suggested above. Well, if we look above in the purport of 117.38, the counteracting process is introduced as the principles of religion that we've been talking about, right? Austerity, and one of the things that's mentioned in the purport is fasting. We talked about food, but sometimes fasting is what we want to engage in. Um, you know, he, Prabhupada brings up the Point in this purport that when we fast, it's actually, it can be very economical. We spend less money on food. It's also good for health reasons, you know, to give our um, body time to digest, to rest. Um, and there's been studies that show fasting in the right way can actually be beneficial to the body. Um, sometimes it's hard for us, depending on what else is going on, to fast for like a whole day or... Um, you know, to, to fast more than a day. What I um, tend to uh, advise people to engage in is what's called intermittent fasting. So, you know, choose a time frame. Like, are you going to fast overnight for 12 hours, 14 hours? 16 hours is usually the recommended. So that means, like, if you were to eat your dinner starting at 6 o'clock, you know, and you finish at 7 p.m., then... 16 hours later is when you would, quote-unquote, break that fast and eat breakfast. That's 11 a.m. That's 16 hours of fasting. That can be very beneficial to the body. When I was first told about this, I was like, oh, God, I can't do that. I get so hungry. I get, like, whatever, you know. And so I started doing it slowly. I started with 12 hours, you know. And then slowly that became 13 hours. And now it's like sometimes I have to remind myself after 18 hours, like, okay, let's you know, I start to feel lightheaded, like, okay, wait, now it's time to eat. Um, <clears throat> so that's one way to engage in fasting. You know, we have fasting days. We have uh, ekadasi, which comes twice a month, which actually is what's recommended in the purport. And this is a different type of fasting, right? That's when we fast from grains and beans and eat only, you know, like fruits, nuts, a few veggies. Um, of course, we figured out a way to create more of a feast with our ecodices, right? And um, that's that's okay too, right? I often say because I I eat very strictly, like a very strict, healthy way of eating, and I laugh because ecodice is almost one of my cheat days, where the days where I just don't pay attention too much about like what it is that I'm eating. Most days I don't eat oil. If it's if there's oil in my food in a codice, it's like, okay. You know, most days I don't eat sugar. On a codice, I like to have desserts. Um, you know, so it's like, it's this, it's a different thing. Also, for our codices, a few of us get together, which then we have association, we have prasadam. It becomes, it's not just about the prasadam anymore. Um... Then 
the, in the purport, you know, in order to uphold cleanliness, ProPed recommends marriage, right? Of course, this is regulating sex life within a time, within some sort of framework. Um, and then he also recommends charity. And he says up to 50% of our income for the purpose of creating a spiritual atmosphere in the state, in human society, both individually and collectively. It sounds like a lot, like, oh my God. Um, a few years ago when I was working at as many know that I'm a physician or trained as a physician. I retired a few years ago just because I got so burnt out with the way medicine is practiced in, in the U.S. Um, but at that time, I was making a lot of money. And even then, was like 50%. It seemed like so much, right? What I came to realize is that we want to donate in charity, you know, to the temple, to other people that are propagating Lord Chaitanya's movement and Krishna's movement, but also, when we spend money on ourselves, if we ourselves are living in a Krishna conscious way, we're trying to engage in as much austerity that's um, reasonable for us to continue our service. If you know we're buying food that's prashadam, that is also propagating Krishna consciousness. So then, in some ways, you know, if we're doing that, a hundred percent of our salary becomes towards propagating Krishna consciousness, right? There's that phrase, charity begins at home. But that's also a way of saying, you know, we want to lead by example. If we ourselves are not living this way, how can we teach others? How can we tell others to do that? Now, my way of living Krishna conscious may not be exactly the same way as your way or your way, but we are all living it within our own way. Right. So I've shared this before, like what's austere in terms of physical comfort for one person may be luxury for another person. An example of that is that um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to um, my brother, stay with my brother in, in Houston and visit my nephew who just turned two years old. And um, in the guest bedroom, they have a nice bed. But the bed is really soft. And that, like, I woke up, like, feeling really achy and sore because the bed was too soft. But we think of, like, a soft bed as an austerity. It's a luxury. It's a comfort. To me, it was an austerity in that moment. My bed at home is a little bit firm. It's not as firm as the floor, but it's firm. So I feel like I'm supported a little bit more when I'm sleeping. Now, somebody may sleep on my bed and feel like it's too soft, and they need to sleep on the floor, you know, um, my other brother who lives in L.A., he often sleeps on the floor because he finds that to be more supportive for him. For him, that's just comfort. That's not an austerity, right? For me, that's an austerity to sleep on the floor. So we can see that we each have our own levels of what's luxury, what's austerity, what's, you know, what's um, real, you know, even in terms of food, right? We all have our levels of how much food that we actually need to nourish our bodies. And that might be different for me than someone else. But then we also have those levels of food that's, that does become more of a, a luxury of that comfort levels, right? It's that moment where you know you're full, but man, that cake tastes so good. I just want another bite, right? It's not your body that's wanting that. That's your mind. So then, then that does become 
you know, that fine line. And then um, part of charity is to preach the principles of Bhagavatam. And this is what, um, again, this is what st- was stated in the purport from 38. And this is either, either, this can be karma yoga, doing everything for the satisfaction of the Lord, um, regular hearing of Srimad Bhagavatam from authorized persons or realized souls, chanting of the glories of the Lord congregationally at home or at places of worship, rendering all kinds of service to the Bhagavatas, engaged in preaching Srimad Bhagavatam, and residing in a place where the atmosphere is saturated with God consciousness. We can easily create all of these things at home for our families, for ourselves. Um, You know, if we are working at a job that doesn't seem to be related at all, you know, to Krishna consciousness. Like, for instance, um, if our business is we, like, own convenience store where there is meat and cigarettes and intoxication sold, it can make it feel like, well, we're not practicing Krishna consciousness. The truth is we need to make money, and that might have been something that we did before we found ourselves on this path of Krishna consciousness. Well, then if we're taking that money and we're, you know, keeping our families to have nice prasadam, you know, we talked about, you know, raise creating an atmosphere that is Krishna conscious using that money. Well, then, you know, that's kind of like karma khanda, like karma yoga, using what we're earning to propagate Krishna consciousness. And then sometimes, you know, like for myself, I felt like I wasn't doing something that was Krishna conscious way of earning money, and I felt like I couldn't engage in that. So then I have to, you know, figure out another way of doing it. Um, So we each have our own levels. Again, I would say that really what it comes down to is honesty, is truthfulness, is being 100% gently honest with ourselves. We hear the firm brutally honest, and I don't like that. I think we need to be gently honest, you know, firm but gentle with ourselves. This can be, you know, we don't even have to share this honesty with other people. But as long as we're honest with ourselves, we're always going to be in a place of peace. When we see people that act in a way that's not peaceful, that's not aligned with what they say that they believe, it's because they're not living in an honest way. They're not honest with themselves about who they are, what they're capable of, you know, at what level of Krishna consciousness they are. So if we're, if we are very honest about that, it's like I always say, like if we are, wanting to go, like, from here to Whole Foods, you know, I put it into my GPS with the location of the Whole Foods. Well, the GPS needs to know where I am right now in order to guide me in the right way. So when we're honest with ourselves, we know where we are right now in order to know how do we reach our end result of Krishna consciousness. And the most important thing that we do is chant, you know, Prabhupada says here, congregationally or at home. Um, But really our japa, our self-meditation of mantra meditation, that when we chant the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra for ourselves to ourselves, is the most um, important way that we can engage in all of the regulative principles of engaging in charity and engaging in doing everything that we do for Krishna consciousness, right? Or to propagate our own Krishna consciousness and the world's Krishna consciousness. 
if we're chanting, then we automatically purify the atmosphere around us. And the people that come in contact with that automatically get purified. Right? So, it has so it's such a potent thing that when we sit and chant our japa, there's so many diff, you know, widespread effects of doing that. Um, it helps us to realize that we're not this body and we're not this mind, and we can rise above that and really tap into that connection of Krishna, which will help us feel that an endless um, support of love and feeling like we belong, you know, that that we're never a part of. That's just we have that relationship within us at all times, and all we have to do is chant. Yes, we pick up beads and we chant in our beads, but we don't even need to do that. Um, Lord Chaitanya says, there's no hard and fast rules to chanting. We just want to chant. But what that means is we chant with attention. We chant with love. right? It's just like when we chant, we are spending time with Krishna. You know, It's just as if I had scheduled a, some time to hang out with a friend of mine. right? And we're hanging out. And then while we're hanging out and she's talking and I'm talking, I pull out my phone and I start scrolling Facebook. Right? I start doing other things. I start cleaning up. She's going to be like, wait, why did you invite me over? You're not even talking to me. Right? You're not even paying any attention. So it's the same thing when we chant Japa. We've invited Krishna to come into our homes, into our hearts. But if we're doing other things, we're not paying full attention, then Krishna's going to be like, wait, why did you call me here? You're not even giving me attention. Right? So that's why our japa is so important because it is that time that we establish that relationship. If my friend comes over and I give her 100% of my attention, full attention, even within the mind, right? Like sometimes I can look like I'm giving you full attention, but in my mind I'm thinking so many things. Um, And even while I'm talking, I can think of so many things while I'm talking, right? So I'm not fully present in that moment. That's not going to help further my relationship with this person. So we have to think that same way when we're chanting japa. There's so many widespread effects, but there's also so many internal effects. And there's so many things that we need to um, think about and engage in when we chant. So I'll end there and see if there's any questions or comments. Okay. Then, Dharantara Srimad Bhagavatam Ki. Jai Shri Rade. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.